We are in Hebrews chapter 11, and Brian, knowing what was coming, has set the passage up very well, actually, because we're going to bounce back and forward, not too much, between verses 20, 21, 22, and the beginning of the chapter. So he's laid out a little context for us there. And as we come to chapter 11, verse 20, the writer to the Hebrews writes these words, by faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. And by faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions about his bones. Amen. And we trust that God will bless to us this reading of his holy word. If you are anything like me, I find myself from time to time receiving a text, a brief email, I am reading a document online or a blog or newspaper article, and I have to pause for a moment when I come across something and say, now wait a minute, what does that actually mean? especially if it's an important document, or often when it's a text and someone under 35 usually sends me an emoji, and I've got to work out what does that mean. A couple of weeks ago, I came across the following, and it reads, before was, 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 is. Now, you read it and you think, okay, let's just slow it down, take it one step at a time. What does that mean? Now, whenever we come to a passage of Scripture, one of the things we ask ourselves, rightly so, and just like this phrase here, what does that mean? And when it comes to Scripture, we are also asking, what does it mean, and how does it apply to me as I seek to grow, develop, mature in my faith? Now, I want to be technical just for a minute or two, and I've mentioned this before, so it's not terribly technical and certainly not beyond anyone who's listening to my voice, whether at home on our live stream broadcast, watching the television broadcast, or here in the sanctuary. And whenever you come to a passage of Scripture, there are several principles to put in place that help us understand what a passage of Scripture means. Now, in theological, biblical studies, the phrase hermeneutics sums up biblical interpretation. And the idea behind hermeneutics is this, what are the principles we employ when we ask, what does this passage mean? And the first question we ask, for example, is when the author to the book of Hebrews writes, by faith, we ask, what does that actually mean? And it's a helpful principle to know that when you come to a passage of Scripture, you ask, what does it mean? And what do the surrounding verses mean? In other words, what does it mean in its context? In its context, in that section of that chapter, because the surrounding words will often explain, shed light on particular words. Then we ask, 
why is it in this chapter? What is the author telling us? What does the rest of the chapter say? And then we ask, what does the rest of the book say? And we ask, what does the rest of the book say? Because biblical books fall into various classifications of genre. Some of them, Old Testament books, are known as the historical books. Some of them are known as prophetic books. Some of the New Testament are known as epistles, which have their own style. Other times, literature may be apocalyptic, like revelation or wisdom literature, like proverbs. And of course, the gospels stand on their own because it's a genre in its own right. So you're asking, what does the passage mean? What does it mean in this context? What does it mean in this section, this chapter, this book? And the broader sense, why are these books put together? Because even within the epistles, you have general epistles, you have pastoral epistles, you have prison epistles. And so when you begin to ask what does it mean, that's a helpful process of working. And the other thing it helps us not to do is this, lift a passage out of its context, isolate it, and divorce it from the essential meaning and purpose of the original author. So you're always asking, what was the author's original intent? And so as we come to Hebrews, we discover what? The phrase, by faith. Now we're going to look at it in a minute, and I have to give you a heads up, because I'm going to frustrate some of you in the course of our study this morning. But I promise I will try and lessen that frustration if you're patient with me and follow where I'm going. So when we come to a passage of Scripture, we've laid out how you interpret it, work out what it means, but you've also got to remember the historical context. Hebrews, as most of you know, and we touched on this in our first Sunday together, was written to a group of folks who were undergoing persecution. Now think of that. It's one thing to read about persecution in history books, it's one thing to hear of persecution when it happens elsewhere, often overseas, doesn't impact us. And of course, we are empathetic towards the folks going through it. We feel sympathy with them. But imagine what it's like to be the recipient of the book of Hebrews because you have just gone through persecution. And it probably means this, that you had to gather your children, your husband, your wife, you had to leave your family home, all that is familiar to you, all that is comfortable with you, flee in the middle of the night, either south and west to Egypt or north towards Syria, Antioch, and what we call today modern Turkey, Asia Minor. And you had to establish and start life up all over again. And the writer to the book of Hebrews at, chapter, at the end of chapter 10 says this, in essence, and for obvious reasons I'm paraphrasing. He is saying, I'm praying for you. I care for you. I want the best for you. And I want you to understand that even in the midst of all you're going through, you can trust him. And then he writes this incredible chapter, chapter 11. And it begins, as you know, where we were a couple of weeks ago, 
By faith, Abel. By faith, Enoch. By faith, Noah. By faith, Abraham. And now that we're getting to verse 20, by faith, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And the question you may, that may be uppermost in your mind is this. Richard, thank you for everything you've told us. I appreciate the principles of hermeneutic. I appreciate the historical context. But Richard, my question that's been running through my mind for the last five Sundays when you've been dealing with this passage is this. What does the phrase by faith. You have told us multiple times that faith is the mighty impetus in the lives of these Old Testament individuals who are in this portrait gallery of faith, the heroes of the faith. You've told us that the phrase by faith runs like a refrain throughout the passage, and it does, but my question is, what does it mean to say that someone says, by faith. Ordinary people. Now, we tend not to think of Noah as an ordinary individual, or Enoch, or Abraham. And there's a sense in which they're not ordinary people, but they would tell you they are ordinary people. They would also tell you they did not, not have extraordinary faith, but they would tell you they had faith in an extraordinary ordinary God. That's what's going on in Hebrews 11. And so, here is the author writing to the folks struggling with persecution and saying, let me give you some examples to live by. Let me highlight for you ordinary, everyday people who've lived real lives, faced real challenges, and whose faith was the defining factor of their life. Before we go any further, let me ask you. If a close friend were to describe you this morning, is that how they would describe you? They would say, Susan, absolutely. She's a woman of faith. Thomas, of course. He's a man of genuine, heartfelt, authentic faith faith. It defines who they are. Would that be us? And that phrase, by faith, as we said, dominates the whole chapter. And the question, of course, is, but what does it mean? Well, Brian hinted at it earlier, and let me explain. Now, it's going to take me five minutes to answer your question. What does it mean? So, bear with me. Often, good teachers will tell you what something doesn't mean before they tell you what it does mean. So, you have a sense of contrast. They will say, don't do it this way, do it that way. If I was approaching this, don't do it that way, do it this way. So, let me tell you what genuine faith is not. But Hebrews 11 describes genuine faith, and it opens with these words, excuse me, verse 6 of chapter 11. We find without faith, it is impossible to please God. Now, what does that tell us? It tells us this, that faith is central to the Christian life. It is an indispensable 
indispensable, foundational principle in our relationship with God. It cannot be marginalized. It cannot be minimized. It defines who we are. That's why the writer says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Now, what is meant by faith? Well, let me try to answer. A popular misunderstanding of faith is this, that if you believe enough, if you're passionate, if you're sincere, the strength of that belief will make whatever you believe in be true. Now, let me say that again. The strength, the sincerity of your belief will make whatever you believe in will make it true. But sadly, that's false. Tim Keller, well-known communicator, outstanding Christian pastor and writer, wrote not that long ago, he passed away uh, about two weeks ago, in fact, from pancreatic cancer, and he wrote these words, it's not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that matters. Strong faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior to weak faith in a strong branch. Now, let me say that again, because it's not easy to grasp the implications of that. It is not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that matters. Strong faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior to weak faith in a strong branch. And Hebrews opens with the word you heard from Brian. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Now, let me unpack that. It's not the strength of our faith that matters, but the object of our faith. For Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, everyone who has ever lived, the object of our faith has been God Himself. We encounter that faith in Christ. Way back here in the early chapters of Genesis, which we're describing, here was Abraham, here was Abel, here was Enoch, here was Jacob, here was Joseph, here was Isaac, and they looked forward trusting in the love and grace of God, knowing that He is trustworthy and He has it all in the palm of His hand. We in the 21st century don't look forward, we look back. And what are we looking back to? We are looking back to the gospel. We are looking back to Christ. We know that Christ is a very manifestation of God Himself. He is God incarnate, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We know He sacrificed Himself for our sins. We know He is trustworthy. It is not the strength of our faith that matters. It is the object. It is in Christ. That's why we can be certain, because He is trustworthy. 
Come to me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You can trust him. I have you in the palm of my hand, and no one can snatch you out. You can trust him. I have come to give you life, and life in all of its abundance. You can absolutely, undoubtedly, without qualification or caveat, trust him. That's what the author to Hebrews is saying. And he's saying, now, faith, not strength of your faith, signs of a mustard seed in the object of your faith in Christ himself means you can be sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. You can trust his promises. That's what's going on. In fact, later in the same chapter, the author says this, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. New Testament authors often refer to the last days as the coming of Christ to the end of all eternity, as the fulfillment of God's eternal plans, as the culmination of His redemptive work takes place. That's what's going on here. He speaks now no longer through prophets, no longer from burning bushes, no longer sending angels, but through Christ Himself in the words of Scripture. All of that is wrapped up in this. Now, you may be saying, okay, Richard, I think I get it. I appreciate the hermeneutics and an understanding of the context of the passage. I understand what you've said about faith. It's not the strength of our faith, but rather the object of our faith that matters. But Richard, we have less than 15 minutes to go in the entire service, and you haven't even begun to talk about Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. How on earth are you going to cover those three great saints in the next 14 minutes? Well, if you're watching from home, be patient with us. I promise we'll get there. And if you're here in the sanctuary, likewise, let's begin to think of Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Now, the question is this. What do we know about Isaac? What stands out in your mind when you think of the Old Testament saint, Isaac? Well, Isaac, as most of us know, and we touched on this two weeks ago, that Isaac was the son of Sarah and Abraham. Sarah and Abraham were well past being parents in terms of their age. And for the past 25 years, God had promised them that they would have a son. That son would have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and from that eternal promise, a Savior would come and provide salvation for humanity. And for 25 years, Sarah and Abraham were frustrated because God had not acted on His promise on their timetable. God had promised, was about to fulfill, but they wanted it, and they wanted it now. Sound familiar? I've kind of been there. 
I often pray, Lord, grant me patience. Grant me patience now, this second. I need it. Not patience. That's passion. And the incident we looked at two weeks ago, when Abraham was sitting outside his tent on a warm day, and three men approached, they sat down, had a conversation with Abraham. Old Testament scholars would suggest, now they can't do more than suggest because the passage doesn't say this, would suggest that those three individuals were Father, Son, and Holy Spirit because the passage does tell us that God spoke to Abraham in that moment in a physical manifestation of his divine being. And Abraham, his wife, is sitting on the other side of the tent. She hears what's being said, and she just bursts out with laughter, almost <laughs> mocking scorn when Abraham is told, we will be back in a year and you will have a son. And Sarah goes, yeah, right. A year later, she delivered her baby boy. His name was Isaac. Isaac means laughter. Isaac was extremely close to his mom. He grew up hearing stories of the providence and protection and faithfulness of God. In Genesis 26, you see two incidents that tell us a great deal about Isaac. And the first was this, that God manifests himself. And it's not often you find that, but God appears to Isaac and says to him, Isaac, a famine is coming on the land. Stay here. I will protect you. Something similar happened to Abraham, and Abraham fled and left and went to Egypt, and it did not end well, ended in chaos and disaster, in fact. But for Isaac, he remained, and God in his faithfulness and goodness was right there to protect Isaac and his family. Isaac had experienced the blessing of God himself. Now, Isaac was everything his father was not. Abraham was something of an entrepreneur. Isaac was not. Abraham was a leader and a pioneer in his faith. Isaac was not. Abraham was impressive, winsome, engaging as a personality. Isaac was not. But please don't mistake his quiet demeanor and nature for superficiality. It's not. I know many, many, many people who are introverts, quiet about their faith, but the faith is genuine and authentic, and it's a delight to interact with them and hear them talk about their faith. That was Isaac. But not long after Isaac remained in the land of Canaan, the ruler of the land of Canaan, the most powerful, influential individual, was attracted by the beauty of Isaac's wife, Rebekah. And when he asks about Rebekah, Isaac and Rebekah scheme together, and Isaac says, she's my sister. He did not want the king of the region taking his life and then his wife. 
And so Isaac says, she's my sister. The king eventually discovers this and says to him, Isaac, what on earth were you thinking? Come on! And what has Isaac done? Isaac grew up with the stories of the faithfulness of God. He experienced it himself in his providence, in his providence and protection during the years of famine. And then he lives by fear and not by faith. Ever been there? Ever been tempted to step out and solve the problem yourself? Ever been tempted to try and solve problems that don't exist? Ever be tempted to live by fear? What if, maybe, could have, should have, rather than passing it on to the object of your faith, rather than handling it yourself? That was Isaac. But at the end of his life, what do we discover? By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. Now, what parent wouldn't? Of course we would. As parents, we are praying for, longing for the very best for our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren. And we prayerfully, carefully hand them over to the protection and providence of God. And we should. There are no safer hands in all the world than His. I have you in the palm of my hand and you can walk by faith. And if ever two boys needed prayer, it was Jacob and Esau. And in fact, the passage comes next. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. And if that was the only thing we knew of Jacob, we would be saying, Jacob, Good job, high five, well done. At the end of your old age, you are praying for future generations, giving thanks to God for His faithfulness. But that is not the entire story of Jacob. When Jacob was a young man, he what? He deceived his father, stole from his brother Esau. Things were out of hand so badly that Esau looks at him and says, Jacob, the next time I see you, I will kill you. That's how dysfunctional the relationship between Jacob and Esau was. Jacob, the name means deceiver. He was a manipulator. He was fraudulent in his activities and desires, and throughout his life that continues until many years later, he goes to find his brother Esau. And the night before he meets Esau, he encounters God himself. And God physically wrestles with Esau all night long. Why? Why does God wrestle with Esau? Why doesn't he simply say Esau, or Jacob rather, Jacob, what are you thinking about? Smite button, and Jacob's life is all over. So why does he wrestle with him? Because he wants Jacob to understand what happens when you wrestle with the Almighty. Your perspective changes. You begin to understand at a whole new level, and towards the end of that 
painful, difficult wrestling match, he says to Jacob, what is your name? Did God for a second forget who he was wrestling with? No. Why did he ask his name? What was so important? And Jacob cries out at the top of his voice, Jacob! Deceiver! Manipulator! Selfish! Fraudulent! Hypocrite! Blasphemer! Pretends! Promising to follow you, promising to walk with you, but living any way I pleased. And at that point, Jacob's name is changed, and his character is changed. And God touches him on the hip so that for the rest of his days, Jacob would walk with a limp to remind himself of what? The mercy of God and the goodness of God and the love of God. And at the end of the passage, Jacob says this, I've been blessed because he'd been changed. And the name Jacob would change to the name Israel. And finally, what about Joseph? What can we say about Joseph? How do we sum up Joseph's life in the next two or three minutes? The best picture I can give you is this. That to summarize the life of Joseph, who we see here at the end of his life, spoke about the exodus from Egypt and gave instructions about his bones because at the end of his life, Joseph was prime minister, the most powerful man in Egypt with the exception of the Pharaoh. And how did he get there? It was not easy. We don't expect Jacob to be on this list of great heroes of the faith, but we do expect Joseph. Because in Joseph, there was no character flaws, no deception, no devastating habits, no moral failures, no poor decisions. In fact, Joseph spent several years in jail for a crime he did not commit. But Joseph's life could be described as a steeplechase, one hurdle after another, after another, after another. Steeplechase is a long race. It's well over 3,000 meters. It goes on and on and on and on, and it demands stamina. It demands strength. It demands flexibility. It demands ingenuity, and it demands understanding the course and being aware of what is happening. That was Joseph. And again and again, the refrain in the life of Joseph, and the Lord was with Joseph. Not the strength of the faith of Joseph, but the object of his faith. The Lord was with Joseph. And Joseph, at the end of his life, looking back, giving thanks, great is thy faithfulness. That's what's going on here. And Joseph demonstrated faithfulness all those years resisted temptation to bitterness. His brothers physically attacked him, beat him, and sold him into slavery. Would you be bitter? I think I'd be tempted to be bitter. 
lost, isolated in a foreign country, opened up to all sorts of temptations in Potiphar's house, despair over broken promises while he was in prison. Think of all the trappings of power and entitlement as the prime minister. So let me wrap it up. Whatever you are facing this week, whatever the hurdle, however long the race, whatever the intensity of the temptation, you can live by faith. And remember, it's not about the strength of your own faith, but it's faith in an extraordinary God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this passage of Scripture this morning. Enable us, please, in the week that lies ahead to live by faith, holding on to you, persevering, and may your love and grace support, equip, and strengthen us. Grant to us hearts filled with thankfulness, utterly dependent on you. Father, thank you for your love for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.